there are big shows and there are little shows. The Lapse is one of those podcasts that sounds big with stories, with production values you should expect from the best of them. But in fact, you're listening to the voice that writes and edits the show in its entirety. The truth is, The Lapse is only made possible by the support of its listeners. You can help support this show, be a part of what I do. You can chat with me, interact with me. You'll get access to early episodes or exclusive making ofs, bonus episodes, uncut interviews, and so on at patreon.com slash the lapse. For as little as a buck a month, we're working on a documentary, a video documentary on the trials and tribulations of actually running this thing. And that'll be up there in the next little while too. So if you like this show, if it's moved you, maybe send a tip my way. That's at patreon.com slash the lapse. With that said, hey everybody, and welcome to the Lapse Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Kyle Jest, and today we are going in a direction we've kind of never gone before. Because while memory can be fickle, you know, selective, the basis of this show is steeped in truth. True stories. For Felicia Martin, her memories of her mother are built upon the recollections of others from old friends and from family, so no surprise, they kind of contradict each other. That's the funny thing about memory. Given enough time, even the vaguest certainty can cement itself in your mind as inarguable fact. The format of this episode is a little experimental, so if this is your first episode of The Lapse, no, it's going to change things up just a little bit. We're going to walk through several scenarios with Felicia based on the impressions of those close to her. Keep in mind, some of these scenarios are going to contradict. As for which one is true, I'm calling this one, Where's Violet? These are several instances of the lapse. I've imagined my mother with heroin needles in her arms. I've imagined my mother running away and leaving us. I've imagined my mother getting brutally murdered by a man she thought loved her. I've imagined my mother jumping off of Niagara Falls and her body ripping into a million pieces. I've imagined my mother in every possible situation None of them could hurt as much as one of them. I was about six, grabbing my two-year-old sister out of her crib, walking down a flight of stairs to the sound of my mom screaming in the living room, just so carefully counting the stairs because I didn't want to drop my sister, peeking around the corner, and her boyfriend was like physically abusing her in the living room. Punching her. She brought us back to bed, kissed us, and said goodnight. And that was actually one of my last memories. On November 9th, 1993, so that's about 22 years ago, my mom dropped us off at our babysitter's house. She got out of the car. She walked us up to the door. It was November, so we were wearing coats took our jackets off, hugged me, squeezed me. Her car was found on Clifton Hill in Niagara Falls. That was the last time we saw our mom. For 22 years, Felicia's been trying to solve a riddle. Where is Violet? What sparked her disappearance? And why, despite the indefinite suspension of her mother's case, is everyone dead certain they have the answer? Scenario one, the police investigation, as remembered by Felicia. 
So I don't know if you've ever heard of Paul Bernardo or Carla Homoka. Bernardo's defense lawyer, John Rosen, that Tammy was sexually assaulted Serial by his killers, client right? five months earlier in July night. They were raping and murdering women in my community. Our police department, along with the OPP, were completely wrapped up in what was happening with that investigation. On the same day, there was a sighting of a woman who jumped into Niagara Falls. It was like, case closed. Like, that's so easy. Hearing things like she was in bad relationships, she was a young mother, she wasn't sure if she was a great mother. We're talking about a 24-year-old who had me at 18 and my sister at 22. Like, of course she was unsure. That doesn't seem like a good enough explanation to me. Scenario two, the babysitter's story, as remembered by Felicia. They never talked to my babysitters. They were never questioned. Dropped us off, hugged me, squeezed me, laid my two-year-old sister down on the floor, kissed her from head to toe, like kissed every inch of her, and then begged my babysitters, no matter what, to always take care of us. She knew she wasn't coming home that day. Violet was a bit of a partier, a frequent clubber, not always known for her choice in men. This new fellow she's seeing, well, you remember what he's like. Abusing her, punching her. Her boyfriend had threatened her, threatened her life or threatened us, so my mom left with him. He was from the US, so walking distance from where her car was found in Niagara Falls. So it would have been normal for her to go to the US, normal for her to meet up with her boyfriend in the falls and then have him drive her over. My mom had been like talking to them earlier in the week about her boyfriend putting in a pool. It was kind of gruesome the way they described what they thought. Your mom's body will be found at the bottom of his in-ground swimming pool. Scenario three, the auntie's premonition, as remembered by Felicia. She describes my mom leaving, doesn't describe my mom dropping us off at the babysitter's at all, just my mom left. My mom wasn't due to be home until about 4.30 the afternoon of November 9th, and at 12.30, my uncle was freaking out about how Violet had disappeared. My Aunt Grace had a dream that my mom's spirit came to her and said, take care of my children, like, I need you. That same week, When you talk about her, when you talk about what happened, where she could be now, it's always turn back to God and heaven and leave it up to God because, you know, he'll give you the closure you need. I'm not religious in the way that they are, and that's not an answer for me. So if she didn't jump from Niagara Falls, if she wasn't murdered by her boyfriend, and if she's not been paying spiritual visits, where is Violet Zarb? Scenario four, the cameo, as remembered by Felicia. It's the late 90s, several years after Violet's disappearance. Felicia's cousin Tina works the exchange booth at a Niagara casino. It's mostly business as usual, exchanging receipts for the customers as they cash their winnings. But this next customer, this woman with striking brown eyes, long brown hair. Violet? The woman taps her ID. No, I think you're mistaken. Different name. Now it's Tina shaking her head. 
No, I think you're Violet Zarb. And the woman grabbed her ID and ran away. I asked Tina, what name was she using? Was it an Ontario ID? And she said, I don't know. Like, I just looked at her eyes and I knew it was her. It wasn't just the way she looked. It was like the way she moved. You know how people have those, like, characteristics about them? Like, things you just can't change. The way my mom walked was like a signature. The way she gestured, her hair, her eyes. And if you ask her, like, out of 100, how sure are you that it was my mom? She'll tell you, like, 99.5%. 99.5%. Not a lot of margin for error there. Scenario 5. Still, the appearances, the theories, they keep coming. Scenario 6. They haven't stopped coming. Scenario 7. And if you ask a lot of them, out of 100, how sure are you? How positive? Scenario 8. There's not a lot of margin for error there, either. Keep this on the down low, says her uncle. Through particular members of this well-known biker gang, your mom disappeared with them. Last I heard, she was cruising around Manitoba. Last he heard? All of these people have the craziest theories. Scenario 9. Felicia's theory, as constructed from the memories of friends and family. She left. My mom left her sort of shitty life to do better. She wanted better for us than she was able to provide at 24, and she wanted better for herself. And as much as that makes me angry, like I don't really hold it against her because I get it. If she's somewhere else living her own life, I don't even know that I'd need to have a conversation with her. I just need to know something. It's been a few months since Felicia first shared this story with me, and now, actually, she does know something. A lot of somethings. Because she's been granted access to her mother's case file. ...to inform them of the possibility that Miss Violet Zarb may have been in the area and something take her own life. The clothing description of the jumper was a black leather jacket and jeans. The age and a detailed description of the jumper was apparently unknown. According to the report, Violet's neighbors are the last to see her alive. No earlier than 8.35 a.m. because the school bus has already been by. Violet puts out one garbage bag on the curb and two full bags of clothes in her shed. She dons her black leather jacket and drives away. She is alone. By 9.05, about the time it'd take to drive and park, she leaves her vehicle at a meter in front of the Tableside restaurant. At normal walking speed, the report estimates she hikes the falls in about 25 minutes. At 9.10 a.m., a Japanese tourist calls 911. They claim they saw a jumper and a black leather jacket, kind Violet wears everywhere, plunge off the falls. A parking ticket is left on Violet's windshield at 10 a.m. It all adds up to a pretty sad story. Violet seemed depressed, said her family. She bookmarked a self-help book to a page on suicide, and 
She even went so far as to claim she envied the recent death of a woman from Ajax who killed herself by jumping off a bridge into the river below. On paper, it really looks like Violet committed suicide. Except... Just hold on a minute. By the report's own math, it's a 25-minute walk from her parking spot. Violet would have arrived at the falls no earlier than 9.30 a.m. Remember, the call to the police was at 9.10 a.m. from a Japanese tourist. In fact, the black leather jacket, the one that the Japanese tourist saw on the jumper, she wasn't wearing it. It was found in Violet's car. My favorite line was, we called all her friends. Not names, not who her friends were, just we called all her friends. As a story of suicide, Felicia does not buy this report, which is understandable. The simple answer isn't always the easy one. But these are the facts, aren't they? They're supposed to be. If we're to at least attempt credibility, an official record is the first place we should be citing. Otherwise, it's just hearsay. Yet, there are inconsistencies here. If we can't trust the facts, just whose narrative are we listening to? Scenario 10. My theory. As constructed from the memories of Felicia, her friends, her family, and the report, which I have now read. Let the obvious be known. I am not a police officer. I do not have training as a private investigator. But if you really got to know me, you'd learn I am a skeptic to the core. I do not believe in ghosts or Bigfoot or chemtrails or whatever it is my horoscope said this morning. But I have to admit, even if it sounds too Hollywood to be true, maybe, just maybe, Violet faked her death. Bear with me. Violet's neighbors place her leaving her home no earlier than 8.35 a.m. by herself. Which is what's strange because she would have had to get in the car, take us to her babysitter's house, come back, and then leaving by 8.35. Not that that isn't plausible. Maybe she had last-minute business, privacy concerns, things she didn't want her family to find. Things her family didn't want Felicia to find. Are you telling me my mom was a prostitute and a drug dealer? Felicia's father seems to lean back in his chair for a moment. She can practically hear him shrug. I went 22 years without talking to him about this because he was like really angry and he hated my mom's family so much that when I brought it up, like a vein in his forehead would bulge. And I didn't really understand why he hated them the way he did. I lived with a heroin dealer. (laughs) That was a bit alarming. My mom was dealing drugs, and I'm not sure for who. She was a prostitute. Not, like, actively on corners, but, like, very strategically fucking the right men to make a lot of money. I confronted the aunt that I mentioned before. I said, like, I know my mom was a hooker, and I know she was dealing drugs. You trying to protect me from all of this isn't helping. My aunt said that the day my mom disappeared, her entire house was ransacked. And then my aunt, Rita, Ziarita, my great aunt, and my nana cleaned the house before investigators went in. 
and my family knew that the crime scene was disturbed, but like there's nothing about that in the police report. Violet Zarb is the youngest of 10 siblings, at least one of which is a known heroin dealer. She's known as a bit of a survivor. She has an unplanned pregnancy at 18 and by 24, finds herself balancing two kids, a college semester, and a career in drugs and prostitution. It's easy to understand why Violet might be depressed, why she might kill herself. But this is another scenario. That's not the story we're telling. Instead, Violet plans a fresh start. Maybe she's in over her head, or maybe she just wants a different life, but she begins by seeding concern. She tells her family that she wishes that she was the gal who jumped from that bridge. She buys a self-help book, bookmarks a page on suicide, and tosses it into the back seat of her car. Now she needs an alibi who won't answer too many questions. She makes a deal with a Japanese tourist, maybe a client, to call in a jumper in a black leather jacket at approximately 9 a.m. That morning of, she drops the kids off with the babysitter, then heads back home to eliminate any paraphernalia. Her family, least of which her children, need not remember her this way. She turns over cushions, tears up old hiding spots, takes what she needs, and throws out what she doesn't. She leaves no earlier than 8.35 a.m. At approximately 9.05, Violet parks her car in Niagara Falls. Not the trail, remember, but 1.8 kilometers away. Too far to walk to the falls in time, but a high traffic, high tourist area, including the U.S. border. She leaves no suicide note. She knows her insurance company would use it as ammo against her family, refuse to settle her claim. If she goes missing, they'll simply pay out after seven years. At 9.10 a.m., 911 receives a single call from a Japanese tourist witnessing a jumper in a black leather jacket. And then the jacket was found in the car. The file reports that Interpol will attempt to locate the Japanese tourist for a follow-up statement. No follow-up statement is made. Along with her jacket and her book, Violet also leaves her purse and driver's license in the car. What she does not leave is her birth certificate, SIN card, and her sister Kelly's ID. From a young kid, she had her ID to get into bars, and then she just never gave it back. That was always in the same part of her wallet, but that wasn't in the report of what the contents in her purse were. Three separate friends and family, says Felicia, all remember Kelly's ID and Violet's purse. A long-running joke sorts. Kind of a point of pride for her. Kelly Johnston, born in, I think, 1965. And Kelly Johnston, like, what a perfect name. Of course, that's just one scenario. One narrative of many. Maybe sometimes the pieces fit best because we want them to. Further to original incident. On Monday, December 8th, 2008, this file was reviewed. It was determined that all leads have been exhausted. The file is not actively being investigated at this time. This file is being transferred to the Major Crime Unit on Tuesday, December 9th, 2008. It will be added to the historical missing persons list. This file will be suspended indefinitely, pending additional information. I think that if she left, it was because of kind of the trouble that she got herself into. From all of the stories and all of the sort of dialogue that I've heard, like who she was, 
It just sounds like she would have done anything to keep going, you know? Her life sucked. Like, as I'm sitting here thinking about all of this, like, she was in a pretty bad place. And I get why someone in that position would want to kill themselves. If you interviewed me a year ago, I would have told you a completely different story. That is a constantly changing narrative based on the information I have, my own kind of mood and emotional state. I'm like a little sad for her that these were her experiences, that this was her life. And to be honest, I feel a little lucky that I didn't grow up in that house. Like, I feel really lucky that I didn't grow up in that house. I can't imagine who I would be today if my mom was alive all of those years. A sex worker who dealt drugs out of our house, like, like, I don't know. Sorry, even in this, I'm like swaying in what I think. That story again, those stories again, were shared by Felicia Martin. While neither we, nor the police, nor anyone else seems to have any idea of what truly happened to Violet, maybe you can help us. Head to missingviolet.com. There are plenty of pictures for reference in the small chance that you have seen Violet somewhere. I'll be sharing those on social media as well at The Laps Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be using the hashtag Violet. Please use that so that we can keep track and please share Violet's image with whoever you can. We may revisit this story yet. Thank you, as always, to the fabulous Jesse Brennan for transcribing this interview and to our Patreon executive producers this month, Jill Galvez, Richard Quartz, and Cindy, whose last name is Dutch, and I am worried I'll butcher, so I will touch base with you next time. If you care to support what I do here, this is full-time work. Patreon is what I'm living off of. It is not a living wage, so there are six exclusive minisodes you can check out there, too, and counting, including one from last episode's Will Lautzenheiser, an early episode downloads. If you like that, too, give it a look. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Lapse. Thank you so much for listening. 